Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right, we're going to be in Hebrews 4 today. It starts with, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel is preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they did, which, uh, the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. The word therefore starts out with verse 1 because we're in a progressive set of syllogistic logic or Greek philosophy progressing a set of ideas towards a conclusion. So when we hit therefore here, we, we're, we're building on top of chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Chapter 1, Jesus is more than the angels. He's God. Chapter 2, Jesus is fully human and became a human sacrifice for our sins. He, as God, he was also salvation. Uh, it, it, Hebrews 2.10 says, For it became him for who are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through their sufferings. That sums up chapter 2. He is our salvation. Chapter 3, Jesus is a new covenant. So with Moses, they all fell short. They all disbelieved. They all had to spend time in the wilderness. But with Jesus, we have to understand we don't we have a new covenant and the same danger is here for as Christians as there was with Moses right and here's the danger the first generation of people that saw all the glory and wonder of God they didn't believe it and therefore they hardened their hearts and they never got to partake in it let's not do that is the argument of, of Hebrews so we get to chapter 4 and it says therefore therefore all these people felt, you know, had to go through the wilderness journey. That's something we need to be aware of, too. And it says, since a promise remains, we'll come back to that idea of entering his rest, lest, uh, let us fear any. So at, when it says let us, that's the first of a series of let us conclusions that Hebrew has, but they all build on each other. So because of all of this history that we have as Jewish people, because he's writing to Jews, we need to understand or we need to fear, we need to have a decent respect for the new covenant or we're going to come short of it too, just like they did with Moses. And they spent 40 years in the wilderness because they never got it. Judaism is based on works. The entire covenant of Moses is that God faithfully waits for obedient humans to do what they're told to do. They do work on the Sabbath. They get their sheep they bring them in, they slaughter them, they, they have burnt offerings, peace offerings. They have to keep all these feasts every month. And then they, and then they have uh, annual feasts that they have to keep. They have kosher food that they have to eat. There's things they can do and they can't do on the Sabbath. There's ways that they have to conduct their life. The, the, by the first century, the Pharisees had built hundreds of rules on top of rules because it was the faithfulness to the law that, that determined their relationship with God. So humans, you got to get to work. Yet in this, even after that as being the history, even as they perfected Judaism in the sense of rules and works, works theology, they had to keep toiling and working and working. Now the argument here is that 
a promise remains. So even after God worked and worked and worked for seven days to build creation, he rested at the end of it. And that was a model, is the argue of Hebrews, that Judaism's the same. They worked and worked and worked for 2,000 years, and now there's this time to come to rest. And he's arguing that there is a rest at the end of Judaism. And he's also arguing in the large scale that there's a rest for everyone who comes into Christ. Christ is our Sabbath. He is our salvation, and he is our rest. And rest then isn't dependent on us. It's a completed act in Jesus Christ. God's work not only in the creation of the world, there's also a spiritual work of salvation that he did. And all of Judaism was the six days of work that built up to Jesus. And when he died on the cross and when he resurrected, he defeated sin and death, the curse that came with Adam and Eve. So that act of, of, of history that God wove together is all for us. It's a past tense completed act in Jesus and a historical marker. It's an ongoing salvation and rest that's available to everyone, every individual and every group of believers. And it's a future act in that Jesus will be our salvation at the judgment seat. So it's outside of time, this rest that we're talking about. That's kind of, I think, the argument to this. Rest is waiting to be entered into by anyone who follows Christ. The word rest here is katapustis. It's the calming of the wind, or to put something to rest. It's the same Greek word that gets used in verse 3, 5, 10, and 11. So, and it gets used once in the book of Acts, right? It's a very particular word. And we can stop struggling with this idea here in that God's revelation of rest is finished. It's here. The, the Jews can stop wrestling with it. They can relax in the fact that they're there. Now, I want to point out here, too, that katapustis is not the same word as soteria, which gets used in Luke 6, uh, 3, 6, as all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Salvation is also used in Greek in Hebrews 2. Hebrews, and it gets used again in Hebrews 6, 9. So the word salvation, sotiera, does get used by the writer of Hebrews. It gets used in chapter 2, chapter 6, and, and Hebrews as a letter is addressing all the things that accompany salvation, Hebrews 6, 9. But salvation is not rest. They're two very different Greek words, and I think that's really tough for some folks to get their head around, including me, right? Hebrews is not talking about our salvation. It's talking about our rest. And in the same way that God chose the Israelites and he saved them from Egypt, and he would bring them into a promised land, and he did. He kept all his promises. Whether or not they would rest on that journey or struggle on that journey had everything to do with their obedience, not their salvation. So as we enter God's rest and we look at that image of, of Israel not entering the promised land, they didn't enter the promised land because they didn't obey and go where God told them to go. So getting saved has everything to do with God. We're not saved by our works. But all the work of the Jewish people was to point or build a model of this idea of rest. So God saved Israel, but by not obeying them, they didn't enjoy the benefits of being saved. Rest. So when it says, let us, we want to be a little different in this, right? We should fear. The fear here is not like haunted house fear. The fear here is like Matthew 10 fear. The fear of God and his power, and we should be working this out every single day. Am I doing what the Lord wants me to do? Am I being obedient to his calling? Not to do works, but to partake in the benefits of salvation that we have, to find rest in what we do. 
So it's the same thing for a Jewish audience. Doing all the works in the world is not the same thing as partaking in the rest that God's given us. We can do hundreds of ministries. We can never enjoy the sweet fellowship of the body and just the blessing of being around people that you don't have to prove anything to. Right? There's a constant awareness of our ability to neglect participation and rest. And then we go right back to works. And that's the danger here in the first century. And it's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. That you're going right back to that, that leavened bread of the Pharisees and Sadducees, Matthew 16, 12. You're going right back to it. You believe in Jesus Christ and you become saved. And then your reaction is to say, now we need to get busy doing all these have-tos. Right? There's stuff we have to do. Lest any of you seem to have come short of it, so they're getting all the way to belief without actually giving their life to Jesus. They believe in Jesus, but they're not following Jesus. So they're so close, just like the Israelites. They got all the way to the, the border of the Amalekites, and they didn't go in. And in that, God was angry with them and said, fine, you can be in the wilderness for 40 years. They came short of it. So we can't lose our salvation, but we can definitely fall short of rest. You, know, you run into Christians where they're living in sin and, and they still have anxiety and stress and turmoil and they're not finding any rest in Christ. Well, part of it is they're still doing all the stuff they used to do. They went right back to their old life. They went running back to their synagogues, metaphorically speaking, right? So to come short of something is an allusion to the Greek games. There was a winner in the Greek games and then there was everybody else. And everybody else was called coming short of it or they were called sin. It's literally the Greek word for sin. You, you miss the mark. And you don't hit it. The winner is the only one that caught the mark. In 1 Corinthians 9.24, Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. We don't come to salvation just so we can lose the race. We come to salvation because we want to get the rest that God's given us. There's benefits and that benefit is primarily this rest in Christ. And again, the writer here is dealing with a works-based Judaistic people that want to be believers in Jesus Christ, but they still want to go to synagogue and make their grandma happy. So they still want to do all the work of Saturday when Christians started to say, we don't do Saturday work, we do Sunday rest. So this is a key concept, and the book of Hebrews is part of why we, we meet and gather in fellowship on Sundays instead of Saturdays. It's a rejection of of the work of Sabbath, and it's an acceptance of the rest of Jesus Christ. Sunday's the day Jesus rose from the dead. He sealed our salvation, and he gave us our rest. It's important to note here that when, you, when I say all of Israel had to be in the desert for 40 years, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, wait a second, Joshua and Caleb, they got it right. They went into the land and said, let's go. So even though as individuals they were obedient, Corporately, the nation still had to suffer 40 years in the wilderness. And Joshua and Caleb had to do 40 years in the wilderness because they're part of a body of people that isn't obeying the Lord. So again, we talked about last chapter, the difference between individual struggles and this church-based or corporate or community-based struggle. When the believers don't influence their culture, then we suffer the persecution all the same regardless of what kind of believer we are. Churches can dry up and die even though there's two, three faithful people in the church. Happens all the time. And in fact, it happens regularly. When churches forget to pursue the calling of God, they become stale. 
and they fall away. They, they, they drift away, like we saw in chapter 3. This is the warning of Hebrews. Don't do that. Don't get saved and then return to all the Jewish stuff you did. <laughs> also notice here it says, let us fear, and then it quickly shifts to, lest any of you I like how the writer's saying that. So, do I have to worry about losing my rest? No. <laughs> the writer's saying, we as a community should fear this, lest any of you fall short. In other words, the writer's saying, I don't know about you, but I'm moving on. I'm going to be intentional. I'm going to be committed. I'm going to be all in. If my intention's in the right place and I'm with a community of people, then the Holy Spirit moves and we have a, what's called a unity in Christ. And we move forward. Or we don't. We have a dead church, and we stay in it for 40 years, and we die. And again, I can lose my rest all the time, and that doesn't have much to do with my salvation, but has everything to do with the quality of life that I live now. I've already got my rest, so if I'm going to teach about rest, I, hopefully I'm, I've experienced it, right? And I, sometimes I wonder when I talk to you know, folks, like, if you're a pastor and you don't experience God's rest, then you probably shouldn't be teaching about it and modeling it for people. So like the writer, it's nice to say, I know I've got rest. I can feel it every day. I rest in Jesus Christ. I trust in his calling. And I do it with great fear because I know that I have a proclivity to not rest and to start to plan things on my own and organize things on my own. And I don't want to lose that rest. I don't want to give it up. And, I, and, and in the same way as the writer, you just say, let us fear that as a community lest any of you have a problem with it. I just, I like that turn of phrase. Verse 2 says, For indeed the gospel is preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard didn't profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For indeed, a few points get made. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 6, verse 8. It says, for this, for that, for this, since that. It's what's called progressive logic. So you take verse 1 and now it, for indeed this. The gospel here that's being referenced is the good news that Moses had for his people. The gospel was preached to us through Jesus Christ as well as to them. In both cases, you have God giving a direct revelation to humanity. And in the first case, he did it through his servant Moses. In the second case, he sent his only son, Jesus. But they're both revelations. They're both good news. And the good news is God cares about humanity. And he's provided a way of escape. So the, the idea that the gospel was preached to Abraham, it was preached to Isaac, Jacob, every time God intervened, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, they all heard. The writer equates that Old Testament provision of, of revelation as gospel, good news, glad tidings of, of, of supernatural interventions from God. But the word of God that they heard didn't profit them. Hearing the word of God and living it are not the same thing. You have to hear it, and you have to do it. You say, oh, that's works-based theology. No. When I hear the Word of God, it changes who I am. So I do it. So it's an odd kind of idea. We can hear and accept, and then we can continue to live in our old ways. Well, that's not really accepting, is it? Because if you know what God's done and what He's done for you, then you live accordingly. So the Jews were, were like this. They had centuries worth of do this, don't do this, rebuking each other, literally Pharisees running around telling people what they can and can't do, everybody getting stressed out, the minute details of food, work, adherence. Folks, that's not rest. Yet as a church, this is the warning Hebrews, 
we easily fall into telling other people what to do, how to do it, what they should eat, what they should be watching on TV, wh where they should be at, what kind of ministry they should be doing. Or do this ministry or do that in the ministry. Every, if I think the ministry is important, it must be important for everybody in this body. I don't need to do that. None of us need to do that. Here's why. Galatians 6.5, every man shall bear his own burden. Women, that includes you too. We fear God, so we follow God. Or we do the opposite, and we don't trust that God does the same for everybody else. Right? We just, if we believe that the Holy Spirit works in us, don't we believe it works in other people too? Because if you're constant telling, constantly telling other people what to do, like the Pharisees, you're actually doubting that God's dealing with those people like he does with you. I don't have to point out every possible thing that I think somebody's doing wrong in their life. That's not rest. But it's, it's absolutely Judaism. So, or, we, we, or we, we don't look at anything and have any standards, even for ourselves, and we, we're going to come into a time where there's gonna be, people won't endure sound doctrine that does correct them, and they'll do according to their own desires, 2 Timothy 4.3, because they have itching ears and they'll heap up for themselves teachers. In other words, entire Christian cultures can build up entire church networks that don't teach the completeness of the Word of God, and they have people living in the wilderness. There's no profit in either of that, either works-based legalism or works-permissive hedonism. They're useless. Both of them are. You have to mix with faith. You have to hear it and do it. Faith is action due to belief, not belief alone. Let's never make that mistake. I never want to lead somebody to belief and not show them how to act. We have to hear it and then do it or we miss out on everything God's got for us. Belief without faith is, is essentially inaction. And there's a curse in that, Hebrews 3.11. There's rebellion from that, Hebrews 3.15. There's unbelief at the end of the day, Hebrews 3.19. If you don't mix them, you don't have either. Point is, Mixing belief and faith, hearing the word and doing it, hearing is the opportunity to have faith. So two people can hear the same message from a teacher, but only one of them actually hears it and takes it and gets the blessing. It's not just the hearing. Two people can believe what they hear from a pastor, but one lives accordingly and one doesn't. We all get the gospel, verse 2, but they missed it. So that gets to be a frustrating thought. Well, in that case, can anybody enter the kingdom of God? But the, the logic continues to go another step, right? So verse three, for we have believed to do, believed, we who have believed do enter that rest. So it's possible, folks, we can enter that rest too. I love that idea. As he said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he is spoken in a certain place on the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. For we who have believed do enter that rest. This is a testimonial claim. Is it possible to get rest? The writer's saying, we have it. Verse 3, yes, it's possible to get that rest. God has given us rest in belief and faith. We can actually have it. As he said, it says, as he said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He says that at the same time that he's saying, and God rested from his worst on the seventh day. <clears throat> this is next in the series of claims. 
It's all in concert with the Old Testament, completely in concert with the Old Testament. <clears throat> the reference in these verses from Psalm 95, 95 verse 11, and that's a, a psalm of worship, folks. Praise the Lord for this because he makes rest possible. It's after the pattern of God's rest on the seventh day, verse 4. This is what God was modeling for us. And then again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Why would God model rest for humanity, verse 4, <clears throat> and then say that there's a certain group of people that won't enter his rest? That seems like an odd thing to do. So although the works were finished, so he did something, and then he's saying that there's this possibility to enter or not enter into rest. The only way that's possible, <clears throat> as we unpack this Hebrews Bible study, is if the rest has nothing to do <laughs> with the seven days or with Israel getting into the land. But it's been established since the beginning of the world. Thus the heavens and the earth, Genesis 2, verse 1, and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day, moving forward, and sanctified it because he rested from all his work in which God had created and made. So then God rested on the seventh day. In Exodus 5.5, the Israelites ask for rest to go worship the Lord from Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't give it to them. That's when God intervenes. You get in the way of God's rest, he gets upset. They get sent to Babylon in part because they didn't give their fields um, a year off to give the fields rest. The failure of some to get their rest does not erase the rest that God established from the beginning and the foundation of the world. There's a, a gift waiting to grab, and there are people that just don't grab it. And that's really what this looks like. So in verse 5, we go back to Psalm 95 again, again and it says, They shall not enter my rest. The writer is making it really clear. God has made rest, and it exists with or without human involvement. God's done his part. Our response is to receive it and to enjoy it. So God transposes both. A rest that we enter in verse 3, and some people don't experience the rest. It's not for everybody. Verse 6, since therefore, because of that, it remains that some must enter it. And those to whom it was first preached did not enter it because of disobedience. <laughs> this is so thick. And again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, today, that's Psalm 95 again, after such a long time, it had been a long time between David writing that and, and Moses uh, leading the people out of Egypt. It's been such a long time. As it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Well, wait, that was written after Joshua brought them into the land. So how do you have the choice to find rest if all that rest is is, is the Israelites coming into the promised land? And that's how Jewish, Jewish people perceived it. The rest of God is the promised land. Well, if Joshua gave him rest, then why is David writing the word today? And again, this, Hebrews really makes this into a big point. That, that for if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterwards have spoken of another day. It doesn't work like that. So we don't harden our hearts because it's already happened once. So he's really unpacking this, this idea that rest is not going into the promised land. Verse 9 says, there it remains therefore a rest for the people of God. A word for rest changes here. 
We've had catapustus so far in the chapter, but at this point in verse 9, he changes the word. And, and that would have been really obvious in the Greek. Sabatissimos is not katapustis. It's not even similar. In fact, sabatissimos is from the root word Sabbath or a feasting. God promised a geographical rest in Israel, a rest from work. A katapustis is a calming of the storm, but a sabatissimos is a kind of rest or a joyful release from toil, striving, and works, usually associated with a feast or a party. Right? So I'm going to relax. I'm going to chillax with my friends, kind of sabatissimos, a party on Sunday. God's been at work. That work's finished. We can get together and have rest for the people of God. Again, we're back in the plural. This is about church. This is about the gathering of the people of God. That's where the rest is. Why do you not go back to your old life? Why do you not go back to the to, to a, um, synagogue? Because the rest that we find is for the people of God. And this is, beware of this. We have a lot of Christians that are just mavericks. They do it on their own. They bounce between churches. They never really connect with other believers. They go in, they hear a great show, they go home. That's not the rest of, for the people of God. That's just going through motions. So when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he was talking about his work. He bowed his head, gave up his spirit, John 19.30. That's the work God's been at work at since the beginning of the world. And the, the, it is finished, tetelestie, a work that was begun in Genesis 1.1, was finished with Christ on the cross. It's consummated, it's fulfilled, and it's still waiting for you. Brothers and sisters, you have to obey to receive it. You have to partake in Christ for the people of God. At some level, our salvation might be individual, but our rest is corporate. Still in the teaching about God's rest, the teacher needs to have be able to explain that to people in a powerful way. I've heard Jesus. I've trusted his promises. I know how to find celebration, sabatissimos, in the great peace of God's people. That's the rest of Jesus. Man, I love just being with God's people. I don't even have to be social. I can just sit in a corner and just take joy in the fact that people are ministering to each other and encouraging one another and just connecting. There, there isn't a pompousness about folks. There isn't a shame about folks. Like we're the humans God made us to be. And for a few hours, we can forget about the world and find our rest. Rest is possible. And the writer's saying, we've found it. Then verse 10 goes back to the singular. For he who has entered his rest, God's rest, has himself also seeked from his works as God did from his works. That's an interesting thing. For any individual that knows what I'm talking about when it comes to the fellowship, the rest that we find with the people of God, Anybody who's done that knows they can just let, let go of their own works. They don't have to be a works-based theologian. So Jesus advances rest as more, much more than a piece of land. It's about a lifestyle. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart. And you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Man, walking with Jesus, yeah, we got trials and tribulations, but I got to tell you, there's joy in those trials. 
because we see the perspective of it all. It's all testing ground. It's not life and death. God holds my life and my death. And that's been finished since the foundation of the world. Jesus was plan A from the beginning. Rest is nothing compared to what God has intended from the beginning. It's his rest. Note that it says it's God's rest. It's not ours. We don't own it. Therefore, we can't gain it or lose it. It's not ours. We enter into it each day. Notice the wording there. But we don't own it. We don't create it, that's for sure. <laughs> but we cease from our works. We put our own will to the side and we let God's will be king. So, you know, in essence, Hebrew is saying works-based religion is done. It's entirely, everything we do now points to Jesus. Like God himself, we strive and we work and we push towards a goal and then we rest from it all. Self-based religion and that lifestyle is done. We can't do anything and our works don't matter. It's, it's hard to underemphasize that point when you're going through Hebrews. Jesus isn't done doing things. He's still at work. The Holy Spirit's still at work. And we have to be diligent in that, verse 11. But the, but the work and the toil and the strain of it all, gone. As God did from His God fulfills our Sabbath rest. Look at how that's worded. Only commandment that's not repeated by Jesus in the Gospels is the Sabbath because he's our Sabbath. He's our rest. God worked from Genesis to Jesus and God created and then he rested in Genesis 2.2 and then that's a model of what he's done through history. He created and then we can rest. So God wove salvation into all of human history consummated by Jesus on the cross, then we can rest in that. We don't have to strain about our, our, our position with God because our position with God has been made very clear and it's been finished. Verse 11, let us therefore, now because of that, we have to be diligent to enter rest. What an oxymoron. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Okay, rest doesn't mean sitting back on my lazy boy and doing nothing. Rest means not having a soul that strives. We set the striving to the side and we rest in Christ, but that there's still lots to, to do, right? We, we still have a church to be part of. We have to be diligent to enter. I just love that phrase. It's intentional that the writer makes a paragraph out of that. We, like Jesus, seek the will of our Father, not our own. And honestly, this is, I always thought this was an odd verse, but I think Jesus is trying to teach his disciples something in John 5.30. I can of my own self do nothing as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. Jesus is trying to explain to his disciples how that works. I'm done with my own will, but the will of the Father still needs to be carried out. So I can rest in the fact that I have, a, a, I have a new boss who knows what he's doing and I don't have to strive on my own anymore. So Jesus modeled it. He made it a point to fellowship with the believers. He worshiped with them. He prayed with them. He studied with them. They were entering into the rest all the time as they walked with Jesus. The advice of Jesus is still active, still today, as the writer says. We have to be active in it. Instead of keeping the Sabbath requirement, and working at it, we keep the Sunday celebration, Sabbatissimos, 
a refreshing party, a restful gala, and we work at it. Somebody's got to cook. Somebody's got to prepare the teaching. Somebody has to lead us in prayer. Somebody has to welcome and, and, and usher people in and make sure that folks feel welcome. Somebody has to pray with somebody. Like, like there's a lot of things to do, but it's not work. It's a pleasure. We shift from having to do Sabbath to getting to do church. In, in, in Judaism, the assignments, the, the roles are all assigned ahead of time. In Christianity, the roles aren't necessarily assigned. We wait for God to give us callings and gifts. So we rest in that. I can go to a brand new church and just hang out for six months until I see an area where, where the Lord's showing and revealing to me that I can help out and I can be of use to these people and I can bless them. And that's okay. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Same thing. The peace and the rest that we find are things that are so essential to our faith. It's so much more important than the works that we do. Think of the people that said, Lord, Lord, I've, done, I've, I've cast out demons in your name and I've, I've, I've done works in your name and I've ministered in your name. And then the Lord says, I don't even know you. It's so much more important to build that relationship with the Lord and rest in the Lord than it is to go out and do things. But that's not an argument to not do things. We have to be diligent in the work Jesus then gives us, right? And not follow what this verse says is the example of disobedience. To hear something and then not do it. To see a need in the church and not do your part to help meet it. All of them miss this idea. This is the trend of humanity. We tend to miss this. It's a very nuanced letter to, to believers. They fully knew where to find God's rest. They simply didn't take the steps to go that direction. Friends, we all know where to find the rest of God. But think of the excuse, the hundreds of excuses we have to not do devotions, to not pray with other people without ceasing, actually, to skip Sunday because we got, we're too busy. Like We know where God's rest is, and that, but we, we tend to go towards things that don't give us rest in our preference. We tend to trust in our own logic, even though the Bible says our own path is a path of destruction. Man says in his heart he has a way to go, but it doesn't go anywhere. We can believe that God's way is right, but then keep doing our own thing. We read, we pray, we worship, we fellowship. It's not difficult. We all know where the rest can be found. And we get one day a week to celebrate with each other. Example of disobedience, lest anyone fall. That's exactly what our flesh wants to see happen. Wants to see us backslide, fall. And that's a danger. So we instantly return to those old things. I think about all the things that the world says to us from, from childhood to grave. And none of these things lead to life. And I remember my high school guidance counselor saying, you have to go to college. Do I? Couldn't I have gone to tech school? Like it seems to be a have to. Maybe I could have taken a year off to work. I mean, I listened to him. I went to college. But then I got into the workplace and they said, well, you got to work for that promotion. You got to work for tenure, then you got to work for a promotion. Financial advisors tell me I have to invest in my future, even if the, I don't know where the stock market's going to go. I have to get cars for everybody in my family, right? We have to do it. I have to promote myself to, to get ahead in academia. I, you know, in my own flesh, I'm like, I have to buy that hot tub. I got to get that new digital device. 
friends and family are like, you got to go to this event. You have to be at this party. This is a can't-miss television show. You have to watch it. Oh, you haven't seen that movie? you got to see that movie. Everything's a can't-miss. Everything's there. Until suddenly you got so many things piled on your plate, you realize you're not living life anymore. You're doing what everybody else says you have to do. You have to get upset about this news story. Why aren't you upset about this news story? Do you not care? you got to get up worked up about the cause that I'm worked up about. We want to save our lives, and at the end of the day, we just lose them to everybody's got-tos and have-tos. That's not rest. What about rest? What about peace? When I give up what the world demands of me and what I demand of myself, and I diligently make time for the things of God, I find I, I actually gain my life when I give it up. We die to the world's needs, which don't give us anything, and we enter into the rest of God, which gives us everything. We stop pursuing the things of the world. We start being diligent about doing the things God's told us to do. Make a commitment. I will do devotions every day. I will work on praying without ceasing as much as I can. I will not forsake the gathering of the saints. I will be there on Sunday, and I'll commit to it. And again, it's hard to teach this as a pastor. He's just trying to get us to be more regular at church. No, I'm not. Be regular at a church. Commit to it. And why think about just Saturday when we can kind of be texting each other, calling each other during the week, doing extra Bible studies on Wednesday nights and Sunday nights, and like stack it up. Be with God's people as much as we can. The world's going to get a piece of us no matter how we look at it. But we have to be diligent in the rest of God, not in the works of God. We start our resting and we realign our spirits to God's commands. Listen to this. Verse 12 starts with the word for, because this is one of the ways we find rest. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. I don't know how a knife cuts my soul. And of joints and marrow. And is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. This is poetic language, but it's, it's a powerful description of the Word of God and the importance of the Word of God. And think about this. We're diligent to enter the rest, and the first thing on the list is the Word of God. You have to be in the Word. If I don't read the Word of God, I don't actually ever hear from God. Yes, God can speak from a burning bush, but folks, you're not Moses. Most of us aren't. I'm not Moses. It's very rare that God speaks in that kind of audible way when he needs to get somebody's attention. The Word of God's right there for everybody to pick up. You want to hear from God? Read what he's said. He put it there for you. The word of God has endured. It's a thermometer of our heart. It tells us right where we're at. Frankly, just for those people that have made a habit of reading the word, it's refreshing. It's a joy to just read truth when you live in a world that's got so much confusion. You just sit back and go, ah, I just love hearing the word of God. It makes sense. It, it connects. It's unchanged over a millennia of time. It's led millions of people to peace and rest. The Word of God is living. I'm just going to go through I'm going to spend some time on verse 12. The Word of God is living. What does that mean? It progresses every day. It moves forward through time. So we, we see these attributes of a living Word of God. It's not just stories and proverbs and prophecies. It really isn't. It's living in that it has inherent power to act and be an agent in our life. 
It's not just words on a page. It's God's words on a page inspired every single one of them. And that means it's an active, capable force in our lives. Because when we read something in the Bible we don't like, we can't blame the person who read it to us or the teacher. We can only blame, like, it's us against God at that point. That's an active force in my life. Because I'm not, I can debate with other humans till my face goes blue. But when it comes to God Almighty, I know he's right. I can fight that or I can be obedient to it. The word powerful there in the, the Greek is same word we have for the root word of dynamite, dynamos. It's active. It explodes. God's promises, 100%, the entire promise of the Old Testament, that every promise that he's made has been kept. And we still have more promises to come. When God speaks, all of creation responds. At a breath, he gives life. When the, Egypt, when the Israelites finally did what God told them to do, seas parted, rivers stopped, the sun stood still, the walls of Jericho fell, armies collapsed. The provision comes from heaven for 40 years in the wilderness. Even when they're in trouble with God, his, his power and his promises are still kept. The enemy flees. Nations try to outlaw it. And over 5,000 years, every nation that's tried to outlaw the Bible disappears. And we still have some on the planet right now, but they're not going to last. What's going to endure past that nation is going to be the Word of God. So you can try to exclude the Word of God from, your, from, from the USSR, and at the end of the day, God would rather remove the USSR than see the Word of God not go out to his people. Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. We have these images here of, of this weapon. that it, this, it's, a, it's a battle that gets fought. When God's word goes out into cultures, it changes people. We can rest in that. We don't have to worry about our culture. We need to continue to learn the word of God and spread what it says to everybody we know, and that changes the culture. Like, it doesn't work on our own efforts, but as each heart changes in response to the Holy Spirit, entire people groups change. Like, the violent Vikings became the chill Swedes, right? The brutal Romans became the Italian lovers. The mighty Anglo-Saxons became the Puritans that wore goofy hats and just studied the word all the time. When the word of God's obeyed, it's a force like no other force on this planet. We can rest in that. It transforms entire peoples. That's a sharp sword. I don't need an army to fight a people. I can just bring the word of God. There's no dull edges in the Bible, like a sharp sword. Even the genealogies, every single word of this book does something. Like, listen to the 2 Samuel chapter 22 teaching. Every word does work and carries a load, so we don't have to. It's piercing, the word here. A sword that pierces goes right to our heart. It cuts through all the crud and gets right to us. It does heart surgery on us. That's power. I want a sword that's sharp. Right? If there's going to be surgery, I don't want a dull knife doing work on my heart. I want it to be a scalpel. I can be amazed when God's word does its thing. If I obediently read God's word, I can trust I'm going to get cut by it. It's going to pierce me. So it's not just that it's sharp, it's that it goes deep. How does it work like that? How does it work that when I pick up the word of God, it literally speaks to what I'm going through all the time? I can't understand it myself 
but it's a, it's, it's a miracle in and of itself. The Bible's good for teaching other people, not just me. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. I don't have to judge anybody because I can just share the word of God with them. Well, that's just indirect judgment. No, it's not. It's God's judgment speaking to people, not my judgment. Hey, I'm not going to judge other people. The Bible's already said what's right and wrong. I don't need my judgment to do that. I can tell you what God says about things. So I just pray and I watch what happens. I give every worry that I have to God and I rest in it. And if I want reassurance that God keeps his promise, I pick up the word of God and read. It's a division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. God's word is totally accurate. It knows how to do it. The soul, in the, in the sense, the Greek use of this word means your thoughts and your thinking, the part of you that thinks. So we would call that our mind or our intelligence. And then the spirit is your general overall existence or your welfare. We'd call that maybe our soul, right, in, in common usage. But common Greek was this is your mind and just your being, your soul and your spirit. It's distinct. And the word of God knows the difference between the two. It knows the difference between your mind and what it's thinking and what you need as an existence. Right? It's possible that that happens. It's stunning that God's holy word, when we read it together as a group, we go through some of the journeys and thinking and philosophies together that we actually find unity of spirit when we do it. The word of God draws people together. Like I just, Sean, you're going way too off on the word of God. Yeah, I am. I want God's word in my life and I want it in my church because it is the very thing that brings unity in the church. We can be divided or we can be united with the believers we hang out with. And we can even read the Word of God and hear and believe different things when we read it. But we're going to move through it together because we're committed to it. Psalm 119, Thy word I've hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. The Word of God keeps me from sin. I know so many Christians that are struggling with sin and they can't get past sin. Bury yourself in the Word of God. Depending on, on, on who the sin's against, deal with it confess to other believers make those things right put your sin out in the open and I'm not saying like come confess your ugliest stuff to large groups of people if it's a private sin just go to your pastor go to a brother or sister in Christ and privately confess it if you've sinned against large groups of people then it's maybe appropriate to confess your sin to large groups of people but let that sink in a little bit if I hide God's word in my heart I might not sin against you <laughs> like it's, it's not like for sure you won't. We all sin. We all fall short. But our salvation is protected by the Word of God, and it's guarded by the Word of God. Ephesians six seventeen. take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It cuts. Joints and marrow in the Greek is flesh and body. It describes our inner man and our outer man, right? The skin on the outside and the meat on the inside. That's a tough thing to divide, but the Bible does it. It knows our insides from our outsides. We don't have anything hidden from God. When you carve a turkey, the hardest part to split up is, is the joint, right? And you need a really sharp knife to carve a turkey because dull knives don't do the work. You want that to be as honed as you can get it so that you can quickly carve the turkey into nice, tidy pieces. And the Word of God knows the difference between our emotions, our pride, our wants, our needs, our spiritual self, our physical self, we ask things of God, and God answers that and more. 
we look at what's of God and what's not of God, we choose God. Galatians 5.16, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you cannot do the things of the world, or you cannot do the things that you would. And the Word of God helps us sort that out. It's a discerner. God's Word helps us to discern and make decisions. It's superior to our own thinking. <laughs> Reading it helps our thinking to clarify. It's even better when you're reading God's Word from different angles. Like Steph and I are doing Job and Jeremiah in the mornings. You know, Sunday mornings we're doing New Testament in Hebrews. Sunday nights we're doing 2 Samuel right now. The amazing thing to me is when you're in multiple parts of the Bible at the same time, you see connections. And you go, wow, this is being said here and it's being said here. I also get to eavesdrop on the women's Bible study because Steph tells me everything that you guys talked about afterwards anyways because uh, she gets so excited about the book of John. So you get four or five books going at the same time. You start to see connections. All of the scriptures talk consistently with each other. And they all together seem to read my mind and know exactly what I need to hear on a given day. God uses his word to talk to me. It's as simple as that. The thoughts and the intents of the heart. There's a spiritual power in the living word of God that moves us. Specifically, God knows my heart. God can speak to my heart. And he knows how to do it because he knew my heart before the beginning of time at the foundation of the world. That work is already done. All I got to do is listen and obey. The scriptures are completed. I can just read them. I can rest in them. So I pray, God, show me what you want me to do today. When I read your word, help me open up and, and read what you want me to hear. Help me to not harden my heart. I pray Hebrews 4 before I start reading the word. Here's the idea. The word of God is a powerful ally in being diligent in God's rest and not falling away. Many more passages that emphasize how God's word is when it comes to partaking in rest. We can delight in God's word. Psalms 119, testimonies are also my delight and my counselors. What delights me? What am I impressed with? That's one way to read the Bible. I read the Bible and I just read it until I find something that I'm just stunned by. The impact of truth on my heart. I get strength from that. Psalm 119.28, my soul melts for heaviness strengthen me according to your word. Psalm 1-2, my delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted to the rivers of water. The scriptures give us deep roots that brings forth its fruit in its season whose leaf shall not wither and whatever he does shall prosper. Spiritually speaking, when we read the word, spiritually we prosper. It sustains us, Matthew 4-4. It's written, man, that you shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's the scriptures. A recording of every word God's ever said directly on this planet. Or at least the words we need to hear. Maybe he's talked privately a little too. Word of God can heal us. It's an odd thing. Matthew 8, 16. They brought many to him that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. When Jesus spoke, people were healed. I want to know what he said. When we're hearing God, we're actually with God. That's a thought, isn't it? When you read the Bible, you're sitting down with God and letting his thoughts go through your head. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When we read the scriptures, we're reading what God has to say to us directly. That's the core of our growth and our maturity. 1 Peter 2.2, 2, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you might grow thereby. So do I put God's word up on a pedestal? Mm, yeah, it's the only thing that deserves to be on a pedestal. God's words to us. I'm going to worship the Lord God Almighty, and in that worship, I'm going to read what he says. That is not work. That is rest. I'm going to be diligent in my rest. I'm going to pursue my rest and hold fast to my rest. I can't overvalue the importance of God's word when it comes to my spiritual health. Then they add on this thing, this and, verse 13, and, and there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We can't fake out God. You can't shortcut these things. You want a robust, healthy life of joy and peace and rest? Get yourself into the word or keep struggling. Up to you. But God lays it all naked. Maybe an allusion to Adam and Eve here. He, he, get, he sees everything. There's no ugly part of us that he doesn't get to see. God could see when Adam and Eve were going their own way. The word open there in the Greek is trachelizo. I like Greek words. It mean, it's a really curious word to throw in here. You'd think it just means open, like an open door. It doesn't mean that at all. It means an opening on, a diff, on an opponent. So it's, a, it's actually a word that, gets, that is used with Greek wrestling. It means that when I'm wrestling somebody and we're standing face to face, all the two wrestlers are doing is looking for a trachelizo in the other person, a place they can get traction, literally the same root word, where they can find the weak spot in their opponent and they can t seize or twist on that spot to get leverage on them. A trachelizo. I want to get that traction. So you'll see Greco-Roman wrestlers that'll grab people and literally flip them onto the mat. It's violent. Good wrestlers don't open themselves up. But with God, we're all open. He sees everything. He knows how to twist us. He knows how to get a grip on us and throw us to the mat. God sees our weak spots. He knows where we're open to attack. He knows the things that will overthrow us. So do you want to be wrestled by God and thrown to the mat? Or do you want the enemy to find your weak spots? Boy, it, when I read the Word of God and everything's open to my Lord, He knows exactly where my weak spots are. My strength comes from Him. He's my coach and my trainer. When, I, when, I, when I'm in training and I'm in the, the wrestling room and, we're, and I'm wrestling with friends... I don't lose anything. I gain experience and skill, and I get a backbone because I know how to fight. And folks, we got spiritual fights to, to fight. We have to give account, verse 13. That, that's a terrifying verse for a lot of people. We actually have to answer for our lives. Again, I'm going to remind you, we're talking about rest here. We're not talking about our salvation. But it says that when we get to the end of days, that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, and I don't know that that's just people that aren't going to heaven. I think there's going to be people that are going to heaven that recognize how much of their life they have wasted by disregarding the things of God, just like the Israelites that didn't get into the promised land. Man, we could have been in the promised land 40 years earlier. That's worth gnashing the teeth over. 40 years. And I got to tell you, the more I'm in the Word, I don't look back with shame, but I do look back at my life and think, 
I spent 20 years just wasting my time playing around with my faith. I, I should, might as well have stayed home on Sundays. There was no fellowship there. I wasn't in the Word during the week. I wasn't out looking for opportunities to bear fruit and bless other people and minister to other people. Like I put that into a category. That's what I did on Sunday. Maybe the occasional missions trip. But it wasn't how I lived my life just day to day walking with my Lord. Much more powerful. We have to give account. And again, as believers, that's not like haunted house kind of fear. That's the kind of thing that we, we treat with reverence. I'm going to let every day of my life count. And I want to say, here's how I spent it. This is what I were doing. And I think the Lord understands. We, we need our entertainment time sometimes too. We need, we need to relax. We need to occasionally hang out with our family and play some board games. But that's easy to account for. Lord, I was building relationships with my family. I was edifying a friend. That when I give my life to the Lord and I, and I seek out the work that he has for me each day, then sometimes I'm doing work that's, that's, that's not necessarily prepping a teaching. Sometimes I just have to earn money to pay for food. And God understands that. We have to give account. And again, I'm going to bring it back to the audience here. He's talking to these Jewish people that have accepted Christ, but they keep going to synagogue to make their families happy, right? It's, it's, it's easier to not fight the culture. I'm just going to do what the culture tells me to do. And he's saying you have to give account. If you're going to take that day and still live and, and hang out with people that don't believe in Christ, there's no rest in that. You don't get to enjoy the benefits of Christianity because you're still hanging out with the world. And you don't get to enjoy the world because God's put a new creation in you that doesn't even like sin anymore. You get the worst of both worlds. You might as well not be saved, but if you're going to be saved, you might as well embrace it all and enjoy the rest that God's given. Why live in a wilderness somewhere between the two? God spits out the lukewarm. So if I have to give account, then that should give me a certain level of fear each day, a healthy fear. God, I want to please you. Not because I have to do works to get into heaven, but because I get to do whatever possible to please my Lord. He's a good God, and I want to make him happy. Lord, what can I do today? What opportunities do you got for me? I'm here and I'm ready. You look at the Old Testament figures when God calls them out, they just say, I'm here. I'm ready. What do you got? Do we live our lives in a way where we're just resting in the fact that God's going to give us exactly what we need, when we need it, and he's going to give us exactly what to do when he wants us to do things? We do the work that's in front of us. We do it with joy, with happiness, but we don't strive. We don't pursue. We just do what God's got for us to do. We give up our life so that we can gain it. What better thing can we have? The celebration of God's people every Sunday. Wow. Nothing gets in the way of that. Very few things get in the way of that. And they better be other God things, right? I'm going to give to God what he's asked because he asked it of me and I love him. It's really that simple. And that's a very different theology than Judaism very different. That idea of giving God his due because we love him is not the same as giving God his due because we want to save our souls from eternal damnation. It's very different. And Hebrews is laying it out. God's watching what you're doing. Nobody hides from him. And we have this progressive kind of thinking. The next thing, and I'm not going to finish the chapter today because he gets into this idea of high priest, right? Thank goodness that when we give account for our lives, we got a high priest to step in for us. Because 
It's going to be awfully hard when God sees every sin I've ever done. It's pretty hard to give account for that situation. So thank Jesus that he's come in and said, I'm your new high priest. Because Caiaphas gave up the job when he ripped his robes. So going through Hebrews chapter 4 so far, you got to mix your belief with faith. you got to hear the word and do it. God transposes both the fact that there is a rest and that there are some that do and don't get it. Same time. God's rest is not Israel coming into the land. It's a spiritual rest. Rest is possible for God's people because the writer says they have it. And we need to be diligent, not in our works, but in entering into that rest that God's prepared for us and not falling away from it. And then the last point we just got done with is that the Word of God is a powerful ally in being diligent to God's rest. Like this is one of the key tools. The next big tool is that Jesus is our high priest. So we serve a priest and we are working for him in the temple of God. And we'll, we'll look at that from a spiritual perspective next week. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I love you. We thank you for your gifts and your blessings. And Lord, may this be something, Lord, that we don't walk out today in guilt or shame or thinking we need to do more. May we walk out with quite the opposite attitude of, Lord, we are sufficient. And as we've answered your call, we've done everything that you would have us do. Lord, that what you want from us is our hearts. So we give you our hearts. You have it all. Lord, whatever my ambitions or plans or strivings are, I'm going to take them, put them in a package, and put them on an altar and burn them up for you. They're all sin. You can have them, Lord. But replace those things in my life with the, with the pursuit and the diligent pursuit of the things of God. Lord, help me to be better about Bible study. Help me to pray without ceasing. Help me to be committed to the fellowship and the exhortation of other believers, Lord, to be a comfort and a, an encourager to those people that uh, I, I run into every day in my life. Lord, help me to be a voice of your word to other people. Help me to worship you with my whole heart and not hold back when it comes time to, to sing or give sacrifices to you or give you your due, Lord. We're happy to do that. We do it with, with our whole heart, mind, and soul. Thank you, Lord, for everything you've given. Bless this day. Bless everybody in this room. Bless the people on the podcast. Lord, may we go forth in boldness and courage and joy knowing that we've found a new kind of rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.